Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on their touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norman. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Advances in the Treatment of Lung Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative partnership um, uh, with the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and we really are delighted to be working with them on today's program. And you'll be hearing much more about the Longevity Foundation as we move along um, in the program. Now, today's program is part one of Life with Cancer, though there will be a part two as well. And today's program, we're focusing on advances in the treatment of lung cancer. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and before I introduce our speakers and we start, I just want to acknowledge all of you on the call today. So we have a very large group of people on the call today. We have over 254 participants on the call today. So there's a lot of you on the call, and although you can't see each other, you are from all over, primarily the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. We also happen to have international participants today from Canada, India, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and we're delighted that you have all chosen to spend this next hour with us on today's program. Now, we do have wonderful speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our, speaker, our first speaker is Dr. Bob Lee, and Dr. Lee is medical oncologist, thoracic oncology and early development, early drug development service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's physician ambassador to China and Asia Pacific, Bobst International Center. Dr. Lee will be addressing an overview of lung cancer and current standard of care in the context of COVID-19 the role of chemotherapy and targeted cancer therapies, and new treatment approaches. It is my great honor um, and privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and I'd like to thank Cancer Care as well as the Longevity Foundation for sponsoring this education workshop uh, so we could share with our uh, patients and their families and support uh, um, uh, 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 supportive uh, personnel to uh, to help uh, uh, patients in this battle against lung cancer. I want to start off by saying that lung cancer, is, despite in this world of COVID-19 pandemic, uh, remains uh, a very important disease, and it's a common enemy that we ought to unite against and, and fight against. It is still the number one cause of cancer deaths worldwide. Uh, and in terms of its uh, the mortality burden, it uh, remains several fold higher uh, than the mortality uh, from COVID-19. And therefore, while patients may be fearful of coming to cancer centers uh, and coming to hospital settings to get treatment for lung cancer, uh, the it it um, it does not stop because of COVID-19, and uh, I'd like to 
make the point here that it's, it's very important uh, not to unnecessarily delay treatment uh, even in this pandemic. And there are ways that we can do to safely uh, prevent uh, the risk of cross-infection with COVID-19 uh, uh, with the use of personal protective equipment, including masks, uh, with increased uh, use of testing for COVID-19. So we isolate the positive patients and, and uh, isolate them away from the, the negative patients to, to uh, prevent uh, cross-infection. This is uh, certainly an initiative uh, my uh, hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, has introduced uh, on the inpatient service. Everybody gets tested. If you walk in the door, uh, with back pain, you will get tested for COVID-19. That way we can uh, safeguard uh, every patient. Uh, the positives um, the cases would be uh, taken care of uh, in specialized uh, wards, and then the negative patients will be protected. And not only that, we get retesting done every two to three days to ensure uh, that we don't miss a case. Uh, so with that, with the uh, the universal mask policy that we have uh, and the testing for both patients and staff, we can now safely uh, give treatment uh, for lung cancers without fear. Uh, and we have recently published uh, data in uh, Cancer Discovery from my colleague, Dr. Hellman and others, uh, that uh, our experience uh, in lung cancer uh, that giving immunotherapy with PD-1 blockade uh, checkpoint inhibitors, it does not increase the risk of, of um, complications uh, from COVID-19, as some have thought that it, there might be a danger. So, uh, and there's also emerging data uh, coming out, uh, both from my institution, but also others, that uh, chemotherapy can be safely administered without increasing the risk. There is an inherent risk if you have COVID, if you have lung cancer and COVID-19, then um, uh, the risk of complications uh, would be several fold higher. This is data coming out from China as well as from Italy and other European countries, uh, and also corroborated uh, by the data coming from New York. However, with these measures uh, and good policies. We, could, uh, we can safely prevent uh, the infections of COVID and still take care of, of lung cancer uh, to uh, radically reduce uh, that mortality toll. So uh, in terms of treatment uh, for lung cancer in general, I tend to categorize them into two types. The firstly, it's local therapy. You go after the cancer that you can see and traditionally, uh, 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 the, it's it's a, uh, either surgery or radiation therapy. The, the second category is systemic therapy. It's given in the form of a medicine, either by pill or intravenous, and systemic meaning that the medicine will attack the cancer uh, no matter where it is in the system, so anywhere in the body. And this is usually given in the form of chemotherapy uh, or targeted therapy or immunotherapy or the combination uh, of those. Uh, and uh, in terms of local therapy, uh, those these are these modalities that the most important 
in an early stage setting when the lung cancer hasn't left the lung and it's still localized to the lung, you go after it, you take it out either through surgery or through radiation. Uh, and there are many different ways of modern radiation therapy uh, that's getting increasingly refined and that Dr. Rosenzweig uh, will get into more detail of later on to, uh, uh, in this session. Uh, and they still remain uh, the, uh, the crux of treatment uh, for these diseases. Even in the late metastatic uh, setting when the cancer has already left the lung and it's gone to other organs including liver, bone, brain, etc., you could still employ uh, radiation therapy or surgery to isolated spots of metastasis and eliminate those sites of disease. So it's still a useful, a very important tool, even in the metastatic uh, advanced setting of lung cancer. Now, in terms of systemic therapy, which is a medicine that's given into the system, kills cancer cells everywhere they are. In the early stage settings, they are usually used as an adjunct to definitive surgery or radiotherapy. So we call it adjuvant therapy or even neoadjuvant therapy given before uh, surgery or radiation. And uh, those traditionally uh, involve chemotherapy uh, and most commonly platinum-based chemotherapy. So we give cisplatin or carboplatin uh, intravenously, a dose every three weeks, uh, combined with another drug. And with, with new advances in research, we have been able to use immunotherapy. This is an antibody given intravenously, uh, which activates part of your immune cells called T cells. And this uh, discovery uh, in terms of uh, inhibiting checkpoints to rev up your immune system uh, uh, has culminated in a plethora of immunotherapy agents that, that are now FDA approved. And this was uh, awarded, the, uh, uh, this concept was awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine 2018. Uh, so immunotherapy can now be given with uh, chemotherapy or alone, either before uh, uh, surgery um, or even after surgery and after chemoradiation. Uh, Uh, depending on the exact uh, context of the disease. Uh, And in the metastatic setting, when the cancer has already uh, left the lung to to other organs, then this becomes uh, the mainstay of treatment. Uh, When it's already in the system, we need a systemic therapy to take care of every cancer cell. And and, uh, chemotherapy and immunotherapy are really the, uh, the crux uh, of of the uh, the medicines now targeted therapy is the third form of systemic therapy uh, the name implies that you need to find the target to get the therapy uh, in to be effective so therefore molecular testing uh, is really the key uh, for successful targeted therapy there is now an increasing uh, list uh, the list increases um, Uh, with each year um, in terms of the number of targets we can hit. Uh, And we have now seen uh, really top-level evidence for targeted therapy against EGFR mutations, against outfusions, 
ROS1 effusions, BRAF mutations, now RET fusions. We had selpocatinib just approved uh, by the FDA uh, uh, based on a, a phase two trial uh, and um, uh, of a RET inhibitor. Uh, and we have several other RET inhibitors coming out uh, uh, with the clinical trials uh, maturing, and we heard uh, uh, the Blue 667 presentation from ASCO uh, just uh, over the weekend. Uh, also, uh, new drugs against Metexon 14, and that's also uh, coming out with a recent publication in the New England Journal of Medicine by uh, my colleague uh, Paul Pack and, and others uh, using tapotinib, uh, and, uh, and it's still an investigational drug. Uh, but uh, uh, cabmatinib, a similar MET inhibitor, has already been FDA uh, approved uh, for this indication. Uh, there's uh, emerging therapy uh, coming out against HER2 mutations in lung cancer. And there was an ASCO presentation looking at the drug trastuzumab deruxtecan, an antibody drug conjugate given intravenously uh, that has shown uh, a high response rate uh, and also a good uh, progression-free survival, which is disease control uh, in in these patients if you have a HER2 mutation. And finally, KRAS, which is the, uh, the commonest uh, oncogene in human cancers. Now we have found a drug for a subset of KRAS mutations termed G12C mutation. And with those G12C inhibitors, uh, which are given in the form of a pill, still in clinical trial development, uh, we have seen some preliminary but very encouraging evidence of tumor shrinkage and also durable disease control with those new inhibitors. So those, this KRAS has for four, close to 40 years has been termed undruggable target. It's now for the first time druggable. So uh, I think those advances are very exciting and, uh, and it's uh, thanks to uh, the clinical trial uh, advances driven by the science, uh, and uh, so the, my, my final message is that uh, lung cancer, although deadly, uh, it is treatable, and uh, uh, there's always hope, uh, and, and thank you for listening. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That was so comprehensive, and really, the, the message you're giving to people is that there are all these new treatments, and, and it's really treatable, so that really is important, and um, very important for everyone to hear that message. Um, and you're going to hear that throughout the call. That's why we're offering this program today. So thank you so much, Dr. Lee. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Victoria Lai. And Dr. Lai is Assistant Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Lai will be addressing the role of precision medicine in informing treatment options, managing treatment side effects and pain, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It really is my great pleasure to turn this program out to my esteemed uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Lai. Um, thank you, Dr. Messner, for the um, kind invitation to speak today and, um, and be here. And uh, again, I also want to echo Dr. Lee's thoughts in uh, thanking Cancer Care and Longevity for helping to um, 
put together the program for today. Um, so um, for the first part, I'd like to focus on the role of precision medicine in informing treatment options. And um, Dr. Lee already uh, touched on this a little bit, but um, an emerging concept in lung cancer, as well as other uh, treatment of other types of cancers, is um, with precision medicine, we're tailoring treatment to the particular individual based on characteristics of their specific uh, cancer or tumor. Um, we know that cancer arises from normal cells in our body, and uh, at some point in time, due to a combination of underlying biological factors that are specific to that particular patient, environmental factors due to potentially pollution or tobacco smoke or other irritants for um, lung cancer, or aging, we know that a small group of our normal cells mutate and undergo changes that ultimately lead to the development of cancer. And research into these specific changes um, that distinguish cancer cells from our normal cells have shown uh, have um, been very fruitful and um, have led us to develop very uh, many new treatments um, for lung cancer. And uh, when we talk about lung cancer, as many of you know, there are two main groups of lung cancer, including non-small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. So um, several of the uh, uh, genes that are of interest that Dr. Lee has already discussed um, are primarily in the context of non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and as he mentioned, we have several um, FDA-approved drugs to particularly treat cancers that have these specific mutations or genetic alterations. Um, generally, these are oral pills that come from specialty pharmacy. And the key mutations that have been very well studied um, in the context of non-small cell lung cancer include EGFR, um, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, um, Medexon 14 skipping alterations, and RET. Um, and in addition, there are other uh, uh, genes of interest, as Dr. Lee mentioned, the HER2 mutation. And um, finally, there are also biomarkers um, that are relevant for immunotherapy, such as PDL1 and tumor mutation burden, which is a, uh, a, a metric that looks at the number of mutations in your uh, in, a, in a particular cancer. And all of this information is helpful for your doctor to determine, to determine the best treatment plan for you. Um, for small cell lung cancer, um, there haven't been any specific alterations that we have drugs to target. But for, for patients with small cell lung cancer, molecular testing is um, still important, particularly if that patient hasn't had a smoking history, as we do commonly see um, genetic changes in uh, the cancer patients um, who have small cell lung cancer who don't have a smoking history. Sometimes these cancers may start out as a different type of cancer and then change the small cell, or sometimes it can occur when there is a mix of um, different cellular types from a particular biopsy. Um, and then finally, I do want to mention pulmonary neuroendocrine cancers, including um, carcinoid tumors, atypical carcinoids, and large cell neuroendocrine tumors. Similar to small cell, um, molecular testing is not yet a standard of care because there haven't been any identifiable biomarkers, but this is certainly a very active area of research, and I would encourage um, uh, patients to talk to their doctors about doing broad mutational testing, even in these cancer types to um, uh, give you the best information for treatment planning. Um, uh, broad uh, mutational testing is considered standard of care for patients with non-small cell lung cancer, and particularly for small cell lung cancer patients who don't have a smoking history. Um, in terms of the types of testing that are available, there's tissue-based testing and blood-based testing. Um, uh, we've 
um, traditionally started out by using tissue-based testing, but um, blood-based testing is also um, becoming more available and um, can be very helpful in cases where tissue-based testing is not feasible or not possible or cannot be safely done um, for patients who might not be able to undergo a biopsy safely, depending on the location of the tumor. Um, and sometimes blood-based testing can be um, helpful because generally it does give a faster turnaround. Um, I would say that if you have a positive result in a blood-based test, it's very helpful, but uh, if it is negative um, and you know, we would recommend confirming that with tissue-based testing, if at all possible. Um, overall, I, I think that tissue-based testing is preferred, but blood-based testing can very much be complementary and can either be used alongside um, tissue-based testing or in place of tissue-based testing if um, uh, tissue uh, testing is not feasible or available. Um, in terms of how to actually get the testing, um, at most large academic uh, centers, they may have their own dedicated panel of testing, um, like we do at Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center. Uh, regardless, there are uh, several commercial platforms that are available for both tissue-based testing and blood-based testing. So I think ultimately the takeaway message um, I would encourage for all patients to discuss the best way to undergo um, comprehensive molecular testing with your treating physician and the fastest and safest way to go about this. This is particularly important at the beginning when you're starting your treatment and may still be relevant as you progress through your treatment course. Um, oftentimes, if patients have been stable for a particular treatment on a very long, for a very long time and there's progression, we'll often repeat the testing to look for ongoing changes in a tumor profile. Um, and in the uh, remaining time I have left, I wanted to briefly uh, discuss managing treatment side effects, pain management, and um, uh, issues on quality of life concerns. Um, once you have your, once you've started your treatment, uh, with regards to treatment side effects, I think um, it's really important to make sure that you uh, th that there is a. Uh, 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 um, that you have a com comfortable understanding of the side effects of the particular treatment that you're about to undertake. And generally before treatment, patients will have a teaching session with your healthcare team about the most common side effects to be mindful of. And this is where having a caretaker with you can be especially helpful um, so that there's another person who can help you uh, manage your symptoms and also keep an eye on what uh, symptoms uh, arise as you're going through your uh, treatment course. Um, and in it, really, um, the, the key thing is to be in close contact with your treatment team and um, not be, you know, uh, uh, reach out to your treatment team often if you have questions. Um, it's really important to make sure that um, you have a clear understanding of what to expect and also work with your um, doctor to uh, develop an a action plan for the most common side effects that you can expect from each particular treatment. Um, pain is one of the main symptoms that we are always actively working on in our patients undergoing treatment, and um, our approach has been that education about the use of pain medications, and again, close contact with your treatment team is extremely important. Um, in my experience, patients are you know, often very concerned about how pain medications will affect them, and um, they do worry a lot about not being their usual, usual self while on pain medications or potentially becoming dependent on pain medications. Um, and generally what we'll say is, you know, it is important to have a very, it's important to have a good quality of life as, 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 
as optimal as we can make it while you're undergoing treatment, um, even if it requires some level of pain medications to control your symptoms. Um, I usually tell my patients it's much better to, you know, be able to go about your usual routine and do your usual activities and be on some medications rather than having uncontrolled pain that potentially limit your activity, for example. Um, it, and for really complicated uh, cases of pain management, we do recommend that your uh, team work closely with a pain management team um, who might be able to recommend more specialized types of pain management or higher doses of pain management and be able to monitor that more closely in a safe setting. Um, and then finally, I just want to briefly discuss uh, quality of life concerns. And you know, before starting treatment, I, I think it's very important to let your team, to have a conversation with your treatment team to let you know what's important to you in terms of your quality of life, since this is very different for each person. And what's important to one person may not be important to the other, and vice versa. Um, we know that different treatments have very different uh, treatment uh, side effect profiles, and it's very important to have a de detailed discussion with your treatment team about this. Um, I've had a patient in the past who was a, uh, a hairdresser, and it was very important to him that he continue working throughout his treatment. And um, being a hairdresser, his, his he, losing hair to him was a very was a it is it's a very traumatic experience, and, and it, particularly for him, it was that much more traumatic. While for another patient, it they might think you know temporary hair losses is something that they can manage um, uh, relatively easily. And so in those cases, we can work with the patient to, um, in a, if it's safe to either choose an alternative treatment or come up with ways to try to minimize hair loss or uh, uh, you know, uh, alter the treatment schedule so that it, it works best with the patient's um, lifestyle. I've also had patients who are musicians, and a lot of our cancer treatments can cause peripheral neuropathy. So in that case, it's really important to them um, that we try to uh, do everything we can to minimize this for them. And, and again, in cases where it's safe to try to treat, uh, choose an alternative treatment that might uh, have a lower risk of leading to this side effect. Um, and so uh, these things, uh, your doctor and your treatment team may not be aware of this and, unless you bring it up and, and have a conversation with them. So I really encourage um, um, all patients to, to have detailed discussions with their um, treatment teams about um, their, their lifestyle and their daily activities and what's specifically important to them. Um, I think in the interest of time, I'll stop there and, um, uh, uh, and um, turn the uh, program back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lai. That was really wonderful, uh, excellent presentation and uh, covering such important areas. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much for um, enhancing the call. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. Dr. Rosenzweig is the professor and chair, Department of Radiation Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, System Chair, Mount Sinai Health System. Dr. Rosenzweig will be addressing the role of radiation oncology, review of different types of radiation treatment, and how clinical trials contribute to your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenzweig. Hi. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner, and thanks again to Cancer Care and Longevity uh, for sponsoring this program. Uh, so in the few minutes, I want to discuss uh, what Dr. Messner just uh, mentioned, and that's the role of radiation therapy in the treatment of lung cancer. 
So as uh, Dr. Lee alluded to, in you know, one of our first things we try is to remove the tumor. So that means uh, doing a surgery. Uh, but in some situations, it's not possible to surgically remove a tumor. Um, so, uh, for example, a person uh, just might not be physically able to uh, withstand the stress uh, of a surgery. So for situations where the tumor is localized uh, just in the lung, a radiation and very focused radiation can replace the surgery and actually do a, a really excellent job in controlling the tumor. And some people think it actually even uh, <clears throat> can work better uh, than surgery itself in controlling these tumors, although I personally do prefer uh, surgery if that's a, a feasible option for patients uh, because like Dr. Lee and Dr. Lay were des uh, describing, it's really uh, beneficial to get information about the tumor and get um, uh, genetic markers and uh, any mutations that might exist in the tumor uh, to help with any care that might uh, be needed in the future. Uh, but the radiation that we do these days for early-stage lung cancers, what's called stereotactic body radiation therapy, or and also has the other name, stereotactic ablative body radiation. Both names are equivalent, so you might see them uh, both in the literature out there. And this is, again, a very focused treatment that aims to deliver a very high dose of radiation to the tumor and a very low or insignificant dose to areas outside of the tumor. Um, so, again, a, a very focused treatment. And it's typically done um, entirely as an outpatient in three to five treatments. Um, so it's a really an amazing time where someone's lung cancer can be completely cured in just three, uh, four, or five visits um, uh, to a radiation oncology clinic and not, never have to spend a night in the hospital. Um, and I even once uh, had a patient who came in on her lunch hour, uh, got the treatment, and then went back to work. And again, that's just uh, something I never could have uh, dreamed of years ago, that a person wouldn't even have to day, take a day off from work uh, to get their treatment. Uh, that's quite the workaholic there. Um, in situations where the tumor is a bit more advanced, uh, like a stage three situation where the lymph nodes are involved, um, again, surgery could be an option uh, in this situation, but many times we do use radiation, again, to treat the main area of the tumor and to treat the lymph nodes. Because the lymph nodes are involved, doing very high-dose radiation is typically not safe, um, and additionally, uh, we need to do the radiation with chemotherapy to try to maximize the effect. So typically, that those radiation treatments are spread out over a longer period of time, uh, most likely six weeks of treatment coming in Monday through Friday. The treatment itself is very quick, about five minutes, but usually with the appointment's about 15 minutes because we spend some time getting in the correct position because we still want to be very precise with the treatment. And then, like most clinics, you have to change into a gown, wait a few minutes, and, uh, and, and then change back into your normal clothing. Uh, so, so it does take a, you know, 45 minutes to an hour out of your day over the course of six weeks. Um, as I sometimes say to my patients, it's almost like having a job Monday through Friday for six weeks. 
Uh, these treatments are done in conjunction with chemotherapy, so the side effects reflect the fact that you're getting both chemotherapy and radiation, so a little bit more fatigue. Uh, there can be some irritation of the esophagus, so it can make swallowing uh, hard foods uh, uncomfortable, and sometimes we have to give medicines uh, to make sure that um, people can uh, get their food down. Occasionally, people can become dehydrated and, and need to get um, an intravenous line to get some uh, fluids into their vein to kind of fill up their tank again. Uh, and that type of radiation is typically done with what we call 3D conformal radiation or intensity modulated radiation therapy. And both of those treatments um, have the same goal as uh, focusing the radiation on the tumor and avoiding the side of, uh, uh, avoiding the normal tissue as much as possible to reduce side effects. A little bit less precise than stereotactic body radiation where you're treating a very small area so the millimeters um, can be determined a little bit better. So typically with IMRT, we're, we're treating a slightly uh, larger area than with IMRT. And as uh, Dr. Lee was alluding to, some uh, typically in the past, if someone had a tumor that spread outside of their lung, what we would call a metastatic lung cancer or stage four lung cancer, uh, they, people would only get systemic therapy, you know, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, or immunotherapy. Uh, and we would reserve radiation for situations where the tumor was causing a problem. So, for example, sometimes if the tumor's in the bone, a person could have pain in that area. So we'd give uh, radiation to the bone to shrink the tumor and help alleviate the pain and, and reduce the risk of the bone breaking. Um, but Recently, we found that if there are some tumors, just a few tumors left behind um, that maybe are not completely disappearing with the radiation, oh, excuse me, with the chemotherapy, giving a high dose of radiation similar to what we give with early stage lung cancer can really help uh, control uh, the disease and really help people uh, do well for a longer period of time. This is a very special subset of cancer called oligometastatic disease. Oligo means uh, just a few. So it's really for situations where there might just be a few spots that we can either uh, give high-dose radiation to or potentially uh, surgically remove. So this is a very exciting uh, topic in, in uh, lung cancer over the past five to 10 years, as some of these studies have come out showing that this might be beneficial for people. Again, something that was typically not done before that, and as the technology has improved, uh, we've seen a role for that. And this is something that might work very well with immunotherapy, additionally, because um, when the radiation gives a very um, high dose to the tumor, some of the uh, killed cancer cells can go through the bloodstream and can stimulate the immune system to develop immunity to the cancer, especially if a... Um, immunotherapy is given at the same time. So this is something that's uh, theorized right now, and, and in fact, there's a number of clinical trials investigating this. Uh, we have a trial like this open at Mount Sinai, and uh, we've, been, we've been putting patients on it, um, um, and there are many similar trials at other uh, centers. And so that's one way how a clinical trial uh, can help you with your diagnosis, uh, because adding new therapies to the standard therapy 
is a way we, we may find uh, added benefit uh, to the treatment. You know, for example, I said, you know, chemotherapy and radiation is a standard of care uh, for, early, uh, for stage 3 lung cancer. Uh, when I first started treating lung cancer uh, a, a few decades ago, uh, that was not the standard of care, uh, doing radiation alone or doing chemotherapy before the radiation was, was the way to do it, but it's through clinical trials and very courageous patients who uh, went on these clinical trials uh, that helped us determine uh, new and better ways uh, to treat cancer. So clinical trials is a very important part of uh, the evolving uh, environment in cancer care and figuring out new ways to do more effective and safer treatments. And thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was an excellent presentation, really outstanding, and a lot of wonderful information about the role of radiation treatment. And I know there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, really an important area um, in well-being of people with lung cancer. And I'm going to turn this program over to Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Nutrition and hydration are essential. And um, oftentimes when you're undergoing cancer treatment, there's so many other components spinning at the same time that um, it can be overwhelming just even figuring out what to eat with all the information out there related to nutrition and cancer and then still absorbing all of the information you're getting about disease and treatment. And so it's very important that you do communicate with your healthcare team. Um, your healthcare team consists of many, many people. Um, there's a lot of different people on your team to help support you. And so um, knowing the people on your team and how to con contact them is very important. Um, bringing in information to your appointments that you have questions about or concerns about is also very important. That can stimulate conversations about um, understanding other members on your healthcare team that you may not be aware of. So um, do advocate for yourself. Go in, your doctors and healthcare team are there to help support you. But as we talk about nutrition specifically, um, nutrition is what gives us the fuel and energy to do the things that we need to do, the things that we want to do, and to get us through this, this journey of cancer. And so <clears throat> oftentimes with lung cancer, Side effects can occur. Now, it can be from the disease itself, and it can also be from the treatment. So um, each person's process through this is, is very unique and different. And so um, although you may talk with others in the waiting room and, and family members and friends who've gone through cancer, um, don't uh, discount things that you're experiencing and recognize that they might be unique to you. So in some, some potential side effects um, that can influence your ability to get the nutrition and hydration that you need are things like a dry mouth, um, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, maybe a decrease in appetite and increase in fatigue. Um, during your course of treatment, though, um, these can change. Like I said, the disease itself has its side effects, but also the treatment does. And so there may be some tweaks along the way, and your dietitian can absolutely help you with modifying your diet, finding foods that will work best for you. Um, if needed, talking about um, oral supplements that are appropriate for you during this time. Always review any 
herbs, supplements, um, even teas, things like that. Those are those can actually be pretty impactful. Um, and oftentimes when they're taken in a supplement form can be pretty potent. And there could be some potential side effects um, or interactions with your with your treatment. So it's always important to have that available for your team. But um, if there are some things that you run into along the way, there's always a, a way we can work through it and work around it. So don't feel helpless at any point. Um, there's always something we can do to help support you. Now, I oftentimes get patients come in and tell me, you know, it's okay, I have weight to lose, I don't need to worry about it. Um, and I come back and let them know that in the normal setting, weight loss over a period of time and, and the rate that you want to have it is probably not as something to be as concerned about as when you're going through cancer treatment. And our body just responds differently when it's going through cancer treatment, and it uses its, its stores differently. And um, one of the challenges is when you are going through treatment and you lose weight rapidly, it's oftentimes a muscle mass that we lose. And the, the problems with that that can come along are your higher risk of falling, you have less endurance, um, you're having trouble getting up and doing the things that you enjoy and that you really want to do. And so when we look at weight loss during cancer treatment, it's a little bit different. And so we want to modify the rate at which weight loss occurs and at times even halt it. Um, we've heard about radiation therapy and chemotherapy, immune therapy, targeted therapy. There's a lot of different types of treatment. And specifically when you're going through radiation therapy, weight loss can um, really have an impact in a different way. They stimulate you. They get you ready for treatment. And weight loss can shift. Um, your body's stores, it can modify how your physique is and how um, they were guided to give you the treatment. So it can result maybe in another simulation or a delay in treatment in, in your chemotherapy or immune therapy. So it's important to talk with your team if you're having weight loss, if you're struggling, and let your dietitian step in and give you some good suggestions and feedback. So um, there are medications to assist with side effects and pain, please talk with your healthcare team about these. Um, you can't fight through them all the time. They're chemically induced. It's not just a normal, hey, I have an upset tummy. It's going to pass in a minute. Please talk with your team. Be comfortable. We heard Dr. Lai earlier speak about talking with your healthcare team and the, the value in that. Um, we don't want you hurting or being uncomfortable unnecessarily. It can also interfere with your eating. When you're in pain, you're taking pain medication. Um, oftentimes, patients are just so uncomfortable, they just don't even feel like eating. And that can cause its own set of complications and concerns like we just spoke about. But meeting with your dietitian, she can help walk through some suggestions to making the right plan for you. Now, last, I do want to speak about hydration. And dehydration is very common with cancer patients. Um, when you aren't eating, you typically are not drinking as much. And dehydration can also cause its own set of side effects, such as increased nausea, fatigue, um, headaches, making you feel dizzy and unstable. Um, but remember that fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature. So this includes water, milk, sports drinks. Um, a general guideline is most people need about 80 ounces of fluid a day, 
And um, like I said, it can come in anything that's liquid at room temperature. But treatments such as radiation um, can increase your need for fluid and hydration. Um, and so, again, talking with your team about that's very important. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to you. And please keep in touch with them. Please let them know as things come up sooner rather than later and allow them to support you during this time. I'm going to close with that, and um, thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'm now going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really outstanding and just wonderful tips for everybody. And I know there are always questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Thanks. Um, our next speaker um, is Ms. Donna Wilson. Ms. Wilson is a personal trainer, clinical fitness specialist, Integrative Medicine Center, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and she's founder and head coach of Empire Dragon Boat Team, BCS slash ACS. And Ms. Wilson will be addressing the important role of movement. And it's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Wilson. Thank you, Carolyn. And thank you, Cancer Care and Longevity Foundation. I um, would like very much to motivate you that my tagline is keep moving, and I'd like all of you to keep moving. And the reason being, as you heard, you'll lose muscle mass. And, you know, if you go through treatment and you stop moving for a week's time, you can lose up to 2 to 3% of your muscle mass. And then once that starts to, you know, connect, what happens is then you get weaker and weaker. So most importantly, the first is to remember one thing. You breathe because of the muscles of your chest wall. So your muscles on your chest wall and your diaphragm, most importantly, as they get weaker, your lung volumes go down. If the lung volumes go down, you have to work harder to breathe to maintain all your activities of daily living. So the first thing is to another thing is your posture. So I'd like you to sit, if you're all sitting down and listening to this, I want you to sit up straight, lift your ribs, let your shoulders come down, and really just feel that you can open the chest. I want you to take your hands, put your palms forward, and shoulders up and back so you feel like you can open up that chest wall. So posture is a key factor. The next thing is your breathing pattern. Breathing pattern is really important. I want you to start thinking about how you breathe, and I want you to practice diaphragmatic breathing or abdominal breathing, however you want to call it. I want you to breathe in through your nose and then breathe out as long as you can. Now, the aspect of breathing is that when you start doing a physical activity and you, the breathing out aspect of is the most important. That's where you get your power from. So it's very, very important to exercise and as you breathe out. Um, the movements that you do is any movement you have is going to take energy and it's going to take increasing the heart rate. If the heart rate goes up, it's going to start to breathe faster. So it's very important to start off anything you do is to start to think about doing a couple of deep breaths first and then maybe stand up and do some knee lifts and just sort of start walking. Once you put yourself on a walking pattern in a program, you want to start thinking, well, gee, I did, I did eight blocks today and I did them in ten minutes. Maybe tomorrow I could do it in nine and a half minutes. But remember that when you're, when you're walking, that you want to really breathe out. 
as you the more air you breathe out, the more oxygen you get in. And why that is important is because every muscle contraction in your body takes oxygen. And if it doesn't get enough, then the muscles fatigue faster. The other aspect is I'm going to go over a couple of things that over the years, the many years that I've worked with lung patients, is that when they look at a set of steps, they're like, oh, no, stair climbing. Oh, I don't think I can do it. You can do it. And the key is when you look at a pair of steps, when you put one foot on that step, when you're lifting your whole body up and on that step, that's a lot of work. So what you want to do is use the power of breathing out. So what you do is put one foot down and you breathe out. You take the next foot down and you breathe out. You start practicing going up and down the stairs so that eventually you can say, well, maybe I only have to take a deep breath or breathe out every other step. But the most important thing is the American College of Sports Medicine and the American Cancer Society has said all cancer cancer patients should move 150 minutes a week. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do 30 minutes in an interval. It could mean that you could do 10 minutes at, at any time. And I want you to think about movement, just it's movement. It doesn't mean that you have to go to the gym. It doesn't mean that you have to do a lot of push-ups and squats. It means that you need to do functional movements to maintain your best quality of life. So when you're sitting in a chair, sit up and stand up and sit down. Stand up and sit down. Now, how do you do that? You breathe out as you stand up, and you then you sit down. If you can do two or three in a row, your goal is that you could do maybe ten in a row. Now, I have to be truthful and honest with you as I've been doing this for many, many years, and I have to say that I have worked with the most debilitated patients ever, and in weeks to come, they really resume what they can do. The most important thing is no matter what treatment you're going through, keep moving. And most importantly, just even if it's a little a day, and you might go according to your treatment. So if you get chemotherapy one day and you don't feel well, some people find the second day is the worst or the third day. The fourth day after that, pick yourself up and say, I need to do this. Don't be sedentary. It just adds to more other complications and other problems. And then when you do finish treatment and you get a good response, it takes you a longer time to get your body back into the best physical shape. So my, bo- my goal for all of you is to find some simple exercise programs. We know they work. I have actually seen it work. I have been working at Integrated Medicine for over 15 years and at Memorial Sloan Ketting for over 30. And I can tell you that my classes, it's impressive to see people change over time. So sitting, most of think about your posture. Think about your breathing. Make sure, and this last little statement, think about this. You, the power of breathing out is think about you breathe out with your arms over your head. You breathe out as you push something. You breathe out as you pull something. And you breathe out as you bend over and pick something up or put those shoes on. Make sure you use the power of breathing out, especially with movement. So I just know that I'm very passionate, and I also know that this does work. So please try to look at your calendar and do 150 minutes of movement a week. Thank you all so very much. 
Well, thank you, Donna. That was superb. And actually, um, so everyone now on this call, if you wish, you could make a little note, make a big note um, around where you are living and seeing and keep moving would be all of our tagline. It's a wonderful tagline for everybody to have. So thank you, Donna. Thanks. And thanks for all the other information you provided as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Katie Brown, and Ms. Brown is Vice President, Support and Survivorship Programs, Longevity Foundation. And she'll be discussing Longevity Foundation's programs and services, as well as their lung cancer helpline. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Brown. Thank you so much, and we are so happy to partner with Cancer Care and with our colleagues on this call to support people impacted by lung cancer. Longevity is the largest online um, network of support and in-person survivorship programs for all people impacted by lung cancer. We're changing outcomes for people through research, education, and support. We have international and national survivorship conferences and lunch and learns in communities across the country. Now this year, thanks to COVID-19, our survivorship programs are all on a virtual environment. Patients and caregivers can receive peer-to-peer support and information from our lung cancer support community message boards. And through our Lifeline program, we offer one-on-one support by matching patients and caregivers to survivor mentors who all have similar experiences. We partner with over 400 hospitals and cancer organizations across the country to match um, our mentors with their patients. Longevity also has 18 personalized private groups for patients, survivors, and caregivers on Facebook. So they're individual groups for lung cancer types, lung cancer mutations, as well as caregiving. And finally, our lung cancer helpline, which is 844-360-5864, in partnership with Cancer Care, is a toll-free number that offers personalized support for patients and caregivers at any time along their lung cancer journey. Cancer Care's oncology social workers um, are there to help manage emotional, financial, and support challenges. And we also provide referrals to financial assistance as well. Now, during COVID-19, Longevity launched the Breathe Easier Emergency Response Fund. You can find out about that by calling our helpline, again, 844-360-5864. And it is to help financially support life challenges for lung cancer patients and their families during the COVID-19 public health emergency. So call the helpline. Um, ask about our Breathe Easier Fund, and ask about other ways that you can be supported by longevity and cancer care. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much, uh, Ms. Brown. That was wonderful, and what a wonderful resource for everybody to have, the Lung Cancer Helpline, uh, just a great resource for everybody. I also want to say that um, at the end of this today's program, probably within two days, you'll be getting an evaluation form, and that evaluation form will include it's an evaluation. We always love your feedback, but we also will provide you with every resource we mentioned during this program today, and even some we may not have mentioned, but that are important for you to have. Certainly, we'll be including the helpline number for you to all have as well, the lung cancer helpline number. Uh, we're going to take questions in just about a minute, but I, before we take questions, I just want to say a few words about cancer care. 
Um, I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm uh, an oncology social worker and director of education and training with Cancer Care. And I just wanted to review with you um, quickly the services uh, and programs that we offer um, at Cancer Care for free. So to start with, we do offer practical and financial assistance. The financial assistance is significant, and it actually is for people in the United States. All of our other services are available to people anywhere in the world. Now, we do offer uh, support to people on the telephone and online. So people can contact us and ask a question, talk to one of our oncology social workers about a concern that they may have. We also offer telephone and online support groups. And people find those very helpful as well. Um, and we do have programs for uh, to help children understand when there's cancer in the family. So we have many, many programs that are, are free and accessible and help people to cope with cancer and with lung cancer as well. Now, with that being said, we now are going to move on to questions, and I'm going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to cure for questions, and also I'm going to ask um, her to bring on all of our speakers so that we can, um, the questions are asked, we can address, we can have our speakers address them. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, and this question I'm going to give to um, Dr. Lee to start. Um, if the lung cancer is metastatic, to lung from another area, do these modalities still apply? Thank you, uh, Dr. Mesner. Um, if the tumor has spread from another location to the lung, then this would be metastasis to lung, but not primary lung cancer. And therefore, this uh, would be highly dependent upon where the cancer comes from, whether it's kidney cancer, whether it's it's colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, there could be a lot of cancers, and they all behave very differently. Uh, I would say the answer is still largely a yes uh, outside of lung cancer spread to the lung, that there is still value of molecular testing. However, in various different diseases, the molecular landscape is very different, and those oncogenes that I had described are more specific to lung cancers, uh, but still worth uh, doing the test. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much. And a uh, question for Dr. Lay. Um, so um, could you say a bit more about stage 3B lung cancer? Um, uh, um, specific, sorry, stage 3B specifically. Just a little bit more about its treatment. Mm. Um, so our general approach for um, stage 3B is um, so stage 3B, it's not stage 4 cancer, so it is um, definitely both treatable and there is a, um, a chance for cure. So our approach is curative treatment. Um, so generally our approach is still to favor um, uh, surgery if uh, the cancer, if the uh, uh, if the particular cancer can be uh, removed through surgery. Um, our approach um, generally is to give uh, chemotherapy before surgery, have the patients go for surgery, and at the time of surgery, 
um, determine whether or not um, any particular additional treatments are needed afterwards, um, including um, uh, radiation after surgery. Uh, if surgery is not an option because um, the cancer and potentially all of the associated lymph nodes cannot be removed, um, an alternative is chemoradiation, so chemotherapy in combination with radiation at the same time. And again, the treatment goal still here would be uh, it's, it's still curative. And the standard of care for um, patients who have chemoradiation in in, uh, instead of surgery is to follow that up with um, a course of immunotherapy um, as maintenance um, for up to a year. Um, uh, for patients who are diagnosed with stage 3B uh, lung cancer, I would encourage um, you to reach out to your doctors and um, potentially ask about any. This is a very active area of um, uh, clinical research, um, and there are very uh, there are several um, uh, ongoing and interesting clinical trials combining different modalities, including um, chemotherapy and immunotherapy before surgery, or using immunotherapy prior to surgery um, for those who are surgical candidates. Um, and the, the the types of treatments after you have surgery are also changing rapidly. Um, one of the um, key presentations from ASCO this year was the, um, uh, the the change in standard of care for patients with uh, uh, stage 2 and 3 uh, lung cancers who have EGFR mutations um, who undergo surgery. Um, uh, typically, uh, so the new standard now is to follow that up with um, EGFR-targeted treatments for up to um, three years afterwards. And so um, this is an area that's um, uh, very active and researched, and in addition to the um, standard treatment options available, I would really encourage you to um, have a detailed discussion with your treatment team about um, anything that might be um, uh, uh, tested in clinical trials that um, you would potentially be a candidate for. Excellent. That was a very comprehensive answer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and a question put out to Rosenzweig. Um, question about having radiation treatment before surgery. Could you just comment on that in general? Is that something? And, and again, it's a general question, so just any information that you could provide might be helpful to this to this um, caller. Yes, certainly. So, so just as previously mentioned, sometimes uh, chemotherapy can be done before surgery, but also sometimes chemotherapy in combination with radiation can also be done before surgery. Um, to a lower dose of radiation, because um, uh, you don't want to make uh, the surgery uh, too dangerous by causing too much radiation damage in the lung. Um, so these are situations where uh, the tumor might be um, especially large, or very specifically, um, if it's in the upper part of the lung and causing some symptoms because the tumor might be um, uh, pressing on some nerves, um, you know, in the upper part of the lung uh, near where the shoulder nerves are, which can cause a lot of pain. So in many situations where this is the case, we do, you know, about five weeks of radiation before the treatment at a slightly lower dose to help make the surgery um, you know, uh, more feasible and, and help shrink the tumor to, to make it easier for the surgeon uh, to surgically remove the tumor. Uh, not done as often as just going from chemotherapy to the surgery 
or um, just starting with chemotherapy and radiation to a curative dose, but it definitely is part of the uh, treatment approach that we will consider for, for patients who come in. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and interestingly, I'll ask question for Dr. Lee. Um, so can the cancer change mutate over time to where immunotherapy may work at a later date in terms of just being testing? Um, could you comment on that? Yes, thank you, uh, Dr. Mesner. Uh, this is a uh, very intriguing uh, scientific question and still a hypothesis. Uh, my guess is yes, but we are still struggling how to make a tumor more immunogenic and sensitizing to immunotherapy. Uh, and this is still a research question. There are lots of uh, uh, translational research being done to, to uh, perhaps upregulate the, uh, the PD-O1 expression, uh, the MHC expression, and uh, other markers, um, but we don't know a precise answer to that. So uh, the short answer is I don't know. Okay, excellent. So something for our next, so to stay tuned for, for our next next program. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, well, there is one more. This is a late-breaking question. Um, of Dr. Tadalai. Um, can you tell me about the latest biomarkers which are being used in lung cancer detection and treatment? Um, so in addition to the um, the ones that we discussed earlier, um, there are there are other ones um, in development um, and a few uh, that Dr. Lee had um, previously touched on as well. So I think one that's um, garnered a lot of attention recently is uh, KRAS, which actually uh, 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 consists of the largest group of um, what we call uh, oncogene-driven uh, lung cancers and non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and there are very promising studies going on um, that are targeting KRAS. Um, uh, another uh, alteration that's uh, being actively uh, looked at are the uh, track fusions, so the end track fusions, um, really not just in lung cancer, but across many different cancer types. Um, and so one of the um, key uh, one of the key benefits of having comprehensive molecular testing up front is that um, it gives you the opportunity to look for mutations and um, different fusions and alterations that we already uh, know about that we have drugs against. But it may it also gives you the opportunity to pick up on different um, changes and alterations that um, are being developed um, in, either in the clinical trial setting. Um, and uh, at least for us, we use that information. At Memorial Sloan Academy, we use that information closely in conjunction with um, the Early Drug Development Service, which um, Dr. Lee is a, a member of, um, as well as other early phase studies um, to be able to um, provide and offer um, the best uh, uh, the best variety and potentially better treatment options for patients. Uh, one last question for Dr. Rosenzweig, and then that will be the last question. Um, my, and this is a, a uh, it's a personal question, so if you could address it in a general way, Dr. Rosenzweig. Um, my brother is undergoing chemotherapy for SMLC. What would you, what would be the indications? be to follow up with radiotherapy. The option is currently being discussed with his oncologist. So any guidelines that you could provide or information probably would be helpful here. 
Um, so I'm assuming um, that um, the question is about small cell lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in today's discussion, we focused uh, almost exclusively on non-small cell lung cancer. So the um, the naming system for lung cancer is is, is a little silly. Um, when they look under the microscope and the cells were small, uh, they gave it the name small cell lung cancer, and then they grouped all the other types of lung cancer in one group and called it everything but small cell lung cancer or non-small cell lung cancer. So it's a it's a not the the best naming system uh, ever designed, but it's it's the one we have. So small cell lung cancer is treated um, a little bit differently than um, non-small cell lung cancer, but not not too differently. So typically, surgery is not part of the treatment approach for small cell. Uh, chemotherapy is the mainstay of treatment. And we do add radiation for situations where we can get all of disease, all of the disease into um, a radiation field. So typically, if it's just in the lung and hasn't spread somewhere. Uh, there are some slight differences in the doses of radiation that we use and the schedule. Uh, but typically, we try to use the chemotherapy and radiation um, at the same time if it's um, only in the lung or after the chemotherapy if it has spread outside of the lung um, to just kind of um, give a little extra control in the lung. So it is uh, technically a, a separate disease, and, and, and we typically talk about them differently, but there's enormous overlap in how we treat uh, small cell and non-small cells. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. There are many more questions in queue, and I just want to acknowledge that. But I want to thank our speakers. Um, We said this would be an hour program, and um, so that I know I want to go back to all of you who may still have questions or even asked a question. So if you asked a question today, we still want you to go back to your treating healthcare team. They know the most about you, of course, so take that information back to your healthcare team. And even if you didn't ask a question, have a question, or heard something else that was said during the call, take that back to your healthcare team. Indeed, see the information you gained today as giving you more information to bring back to your healthcare team about how it applies to you. That's really what's important. Now, and But I know that many of you like to go to other places to get information, and so I do certainly recommend we are partnering with the Longevity Foundation. That is a wonderful resource for all of you to go to for information, lots of information there. So that's a ter- terrific uh, resource, and we will actually provide you in your evaluation form with their all their information, website, everything, so you'll be able to contact them. And we also often recommend, in addition, uh, for, in general, in most of our programs, we recommend people call the National Cancer Institute as well um, if they want to get some additional information. And for those of you who wish to pursue any further services from Cancer Care um, and wish to take advantage of the um, the um, lung cancer helpline or wish to contact our oncology social workers at Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673, please do contact Cancer Care um, for any of the services um, that, um, that we offer um, for you. Most importantly, as we conclude the call today, we do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. 
in coping with lung cancer, any type of cancer. We want you to know that you're now part of a very large community of support. There are literally hundreds of organizations out there that can help you. A matter of choosing the right ones for you is really important. And of course, your healthcare team, which consists not only of your oncologist or your um, radiation oncologist um, or your surgeon, it includes all the other members of that team which can help you with many questions that you may have. So I want to thank you all for your participation today and remind you that we do have a part two, which is for caregivers. And I hope you'll, I know some of you have signed up for that, but you'll be getting information about that program as well. Thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.